Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And this morning we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. Thank you so much for being here. And it's good to be back all together. After last Sunday, I was thankful for those that were able to come out. And also thankful for those in their pajamas who were watching online. But it's good to be back, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. Uh, We want you to know that everything we do here is based on, rooted in, grounded in the Word of God. It's not our thoughts and opinions and uh, pontifications that matter. What matter is God and His Holy Word. And so we have a copy of God's Word for you. It should be somewhere along uh, under the chairs in front of you. And it's on, I believe, page 697, 697, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. A couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Luke uh, teed this passage up, and more than just this passage, but really the rest of the book of Daniel, the first six chapters of Daniel are narrative sections. They reveal to us uh, what happens in the life of Daniel from age 15 or 16 till age 85, perhaps even creeping up towards age 90. Daniel's entire life, that span, we're given some snapshot looks at different things that happened to both him and his three friends as they are kidnapped from the royal palace in Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. And Daniel outlives the Babylonian Empire and all the way into the Medo-Persian one. But here in the back half of Daniel, from 7 through to 12, there are a number of visions that Daniel himself receives. He has been an interpreter of dreams and visions for others, and now he himself is receiving these dreams and visions. Not all of them are apocalyptic, although they are all prophetic, but this one is indeed apocalyptic, and as we looked at, apocalyptic literature has as its goal to elicit emotion. It's intended to give us uh, a shock, perhaps. It's intended to stir something within us, especially as it looks at the reality of what is to come. So it is not just revealing to us the future, but it is showing us the future almost in a, its truest form, in its barest, rawest form. It, it is quite scary, especially as it relates to human evil. Yet God in his mercy does not just reveal this to Daniel in verses 1 through 8, but as we saw last Sunday, he shows the Ancient of Days in 9 through 12. 9 and 10, a description of the Ancient of Days, the one who sits on the throne and then In 11 and 12, the final destiny, the the final future of the kingdoms of men. But now we're introduced to another character in verses 13 and 14, and I believe this is one of, if not the clearest passages in the Old Testament on the deity of Jesus Christ, and we're going to make those connections this morning. So follow along with me if you would, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented, presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of God. Daniel sees something here then that is at first glance somewhat confusing. I have titled the first point, Deity and Duality. There is no question when you read the description in verses 9 and 10 who that is. The ancient of days, the one who is pure righteousness and truth and purity and wisdom and justice. It is clear from his description who Daniel is seeing. He is seeing Almighty God seated on his throne and the books of judgment will be opened and people will be judged thereby. But this next character that enters the scene is somewhat more difficult to pin down because although they have the trappings of deity, there are things used to describe them that appear to be describing someone who is God. They also appear to be human. And in Daniel's understanding at that point, God and humanity are two separate things. And yet Daniel is privileged beyond measure to view a pre-incarnate glimpse of the incarnated Jesus Christ. This mystery of the God-man, the one who loved us so much that he came down from the heavenlies to become one of us. He is not indifferent as he sees from the heavenlies. He is not unaware of our situation and circumstances. He is not capricious or malevolent, nor does he turn a blind eye to our pain and our suffering. This one, the only one to do so, did not simply look down on us from on high and laugh at us as we attempt to make our way up. This one, out of love beyond our capacity to understand, came down and became one of us. And Daniel sees in this passage one that is like a son of man, one like someone who is human, appears in all his form to be human, and yet there is deity ascribed to him. And let us look then at these deity and duality realities from this passage. In the first place, we see that deity arrives. How does this one come onto the scene? And behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. There are about 70 descriptors of God as it relates to him and clouds, his appearance in the clouds, his use of clouds. He appears to the nation of Israel as a pillar of cloud. He rides on the clouds, it says in different passages. There's Psalm 104 verse 3, Isaiah 19, 1, that are representative, not exhaustive. This mode of travel And this description is exclusively in the Old Testament reserved for those that are God, who is one. And yet, this description is applied to this one who is like a son of man. How this son of man arrives on the scene is the way that deity arrives. The one true God travels this way, and only the one true God travels this way. And here this one, like the son of man, arrives on the scene in this fashion. You will see a number of passages in the questions for further reflection. 
as you take some time after the sermon to review and as we gather with our community groups. This is throughout the Old Testament. And so this is not lost on Daniel. This one arrives as only God arrives. Therefore, there is indications from the text that this one is God, is deity, has all of the realities of the divine in them. And yet, in the next part of the verse, we have duality described. He comes like a son of man, came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. He is not the Ancient of Days, separate and distinct from the Ancient of Days, and appears to be human. And so, no doubt, there is some confusion in Daniel's mind. Who is this one who looks human but is also divine. Can those two things come together? Certainly humans are made in the image of God, but it's clear the humans are not God. They are not divine. In fact, one of Daniel's contemporaries, Ezekiel, this is a repeated phrase, son of man, throughout the book of Ezekiel, to delineate the fact, Ezekiel, you are not me. I am God and uh, there is no other like me, but you are a son of man. You are human. And yet here in this description, we have one who arrives as only God does, and yet in appearance is though he is human. Notice in the third place that this duality is further implied because it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And that at first blush, that it appears to be divine, but notice it says, was given. This does not necessarily appear to be something that this individual possessed from all time, although that's not necessarily uh, off the table, but the reality is that this dominion and kingdom and power was given to him. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. The end of Matthew, what we know as the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's something here because in Matthew 4, Satan attempts to tempt Jesus by saying, bow down to me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And our natural response would be, they're not yours to give. And that is true. Yet, Jesus does not respond that way, and here in Matthew 18, 28, 18, it says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. There's something here in the interrelatedness of the Trinity, that Jesus is God and only God, he is fully God, but he's also fully human, and his relationship to his Father is one of sharing love and glory, and his position seems to be one of submission to the Father. He has this glory and dominion and kingdom, but it is given to him. This, of course, draws our mind back to Daniel 2, where in this image that Nebuchadnezzar sees, all of the glories of human kingdoms are destroyed by the stone cut out without hands that crushes 
the statue and then spreads throughout the whole earth and becomes a great mountain. This is the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that he talks about a lot in the Gospels. It starts like a grain of mustard seed. It's small, but then it spreads. It grows like yeast in dough. It it, it, it expands throughout the whole world. This is the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that is given to him. But what kind of kingdom is it? We come back then to deity displayed because notice this kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Unlike human, purely human kingdoms, his kingdom will never see an end. His kingdom will never fade away or burn quickly. His kingdom will not be taken over in the night as Babylon was by Medo-Persia. This dominion is an everlasting dominion. And notice it says that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And at least one other text that uses the word worship. This is something reserved only for God. This one is served by humanity. And yet he himself appears to be human. What a beautiful picture of the God-man Jesus Christ. Now, go with me if you would to the second point, which is that Jesus claims deity. Go to Mark chapter 14, verses 60 to 64. Mark chapter 14, verses 60 to 64. One of Jesus' favorite names for himself is Son of Man. He uses it in the four Gospels almost 80 times. And it is clear that he is referencing this vision in Daniel 7. Son of Man speaks to both his deity and his humanity. He is one like a Son of Man. He is fully human. He is one of us. And yet, he is much greater than even the best of us. He is a perfect version of us because he is also God. Notice this interchange when Jesus is brought before the council and the high priest in Mark 14, starting at verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus here makes reference in verse 62 to two Old Testament passages, Psalm 110, as well as Daniel 7, 13, and 14. He says, You will see two things. You will see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. You will see him seated at the right hand of power, Psalm 110. You will also see him coming with the clouds of heaven, Daniel 7, 13. He is seated. 
He has a place of authority. And you cannot miss Daniel 7, 9, and 10. The Ancient of Days is seated, has a position of authority. Jesus is God and very God. But he is coming to judge. If we looked at that scene and we saw Jesus beaten, weak seemingly, before the religious leaders of his day, we would say the one person in that scene who is not in control is Jesus. And yet he is the one person in the scene who is in control of everything, even the breathing and the heartbeat of those that supposedly are judging him. He is son of God and son of man. And he says, you will see the son of man coming in power and great glory. And so in a third place, let's see the deity of Jesus. We're going to steal a little bit from our series in Revelation that hopefully starts this September. But go to Revelation chapter 1, if you would. And we want to read verses 12 through 16 and then Revelation 14, 14 through 16. John calls his book the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the individual that he sees here in chapter 1 is clearly the resurrected Christ. And notice in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What does this sound like as we read it one week removed from Daniel 7, 9, and 10? Does this not sound like the ancient of days who also has hair like white as wool, one whose throne is on fire, the fire of truth and justice and righteousness and judgment? Does this not give you those similarities when you compare the two? Jesus Christ, the righteous, the resurrected Lord, appears like a son of man. Did you know that Jesus Christ today is still incarnated? He loved us that much that he became one of us for all eternity. That's how much he loves us. But he peeled back a little bit on the Mount of Transfiguration and showed his disciples what he really looks like, and John catches a glimpse of what the resurrected Jesus looks like. There is no doubt he is God and very God. His appearance here matches and mirrors much of the description of the ancient of days. And so as Christians, we believe in the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is God, and he is also man. But go with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 16. Revelation 14, starting at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. 
And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. We read this as part of our liturgy in Matthew 25. There is coming a day when the earth is going to be divided into those who worship and submit to the Lord Christ and those who do not. And we see wrongly his patience if we see it as indifference. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come in his first advent the way that everyone thought that he would. Last week, we had as part of our question for the reflection, John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, knew well Jesus, knew who he was, knew who John the Baptist was. I'm sure his father told the story of the angel coming to him in the temple many, many times, so many times that John probably was tired of hearing of it. He knew that he was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. He knew he was the fulfillment of Malachi 4. He knew that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And yet, where is John the Baptist? He's in prison soon to be beheaded because of an erotic dance by a teenager. This is not part of the plan, he says to Jesus. So he sends his disciples to say, are you the one? And Jesus says, tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the deaf hear. The dead are raised to life again. Yes, I am the Messiah, but not necessarily the Messiah that you were looking for. But that Messiah is coming back. And all those that live their lives as though if he is not are in grave peril. Our society denies God and not just his existence but also his design. Good and righteous and holy as it is. They deny everything about him. But that does not mean that he does not exist. And we take his long-suffering and his patience as proof of his non-existence to our own detriment. Jesus Christ knew who he was. He knew that he was the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He called himself that the most of any uh, way that he referred to himself in the Gospels. And he says to the high priest, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power, also seated at the right hand of the one who has all power and authority. He is described this way by John in Revelation 1, and then he comes to reap the earth in Revelation 14. Woe to those who do not have their sins placed upon Jesus. Woe to those who do not submit to him. And so I want to read a tweet that was sent out this week. I thought it was very applicable as we close this morning and head into our time of communion. Many Christians, this is Peter Lightheart, many Christians are so worried about over-realized eschatology that they fall into a drastically under-realized eschatology. What is over-realized eschatology? It means everything that is coming is already here. So Christ fully on his throne Power over all disease and death and money seems to be the main thing is preached then in churches as all the things that Jesus promised were going to come are already here. 
we rightly see that and say, no, all the promises of Christ have not yet been fulfilled. But the problem is we can go too far and misunderstand the power that is there. And so Peter goes on to say, over-realized eschatology is an error, but under-realized is also a serious flaw. It leads the church to forget the power at her disposal and can become an excuse for inaction and failure. It unintentionally despises the Lord's gifts. What is true now? Jesus is king and the Father has handed him the nations. His spirit has come. Resurrection life and new creation are unleashed on the world. Jesus goes with us as we scatter to disciple nations and call kings and judges to kiss the world's true king. Believe this and rejoice. Can I get a stronger amen? amen. That's true now. The same Jesus that was here, we celebrated Christmas, born in the manger. The same Jesus that walked this earth, this gentle Jesus, is also this Jesus. And that's the same Jesus that we worship and serve. And as things get harder and harder for Christians, it ought to give us more and more strength. Because the whole purpose of Daniel 7 is not to freak Daniel out because of this fourth beast, but it's to give him confidence, faith, and trust in the one who is going to snuff the fourth beast out with the word of his mouth. That's who we serve. And so Jesus is fully God and fully human. Are you submitted to him this morning? I pray that you are. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace your goodness, your kindness to us. Father, far too often we fail to recognize that your long-suffering and your patience is not indicative of your indifference or your inability. Father, you have given us time, precious little time, to share with everyone we know your beauty and your goodness and your power and your glory. Many deny you, and more and more, even those who supposedly bear your name are becoming increasingly ashamed to do so. Father, we ought not to have arrogance, but we ought to have humble confidence. We are nothing. You are everything. As the nations array against you, how puny, how feeble, how fragile, how futile the one who sits in the heavens laughs. Father, help us to understand and recognize that one we serve is the almighty sovereign of the universe who has put all things under his feet, who is the ultimate ruler over all, 
Father, our role is simply to introduce you to everyone we know. May we trust in you, have confidence in you, knowing that one day, perhaps soon, you will return. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move into our time of communion, this commemoration of all that Jesus Christ did for us, we want to call the ushers forward at this time, if they would, and then we're going to read the final part of our church covenant together and pray, and then they'll distribute the elements. Our church covenant reads in its final paragraph, we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute regularly, according to God's word, to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. This is part of the promise that we have made to each other. May we endeavor to fulfill it by the power that Christ gives. Let's look to him in prayer as we distribute the, and we then distribute the elements. Father, we thank you again for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. How richly he humbled himself beyond our capacity to fathom. The one who spoke all things into existence, and as we saw from the children's sermon illustration, the one who created all things that have been created now stands as part of that creation, judged by other parts of that creation, parts of that creation that he is keeping alive by the power of his word. Father, to be obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. This is amazing love and amazing grace. Fathers, we commemorate that this morning as we celebrate that. May we experience both fear and awe at you, but also great rejoicing, hope, and peace knowing that your just wrath against our evil has been poured out on your son on our behalf. And so therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to celebrate that this morning, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.